Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. Okay, Luke chapter 18, if you turn in your Bibles or click in your phones, that is where we're at. Um, the first word of this chapter is the word then. When we see the word then, we know that this is Luke's using language there, that this is continuing on the Jerusalem road set of teachings. The Pharisees accused Jesus of eating with sinners, and we've been on that for a few chapters. Then Jesus is asked, when will the kingdom come? And Jesus' answer to that in the last chapter was, it's right in front of you. Like, it's not coming later, it's now, and it's wherever you gather, that's where the kingdom of God can be found. It's going to feel like it's never going to come. There's going to be a day where we wish we had Jesus with us. There will be false teachers, shocking, that's going to come up. And now he's responding to the disciples' request, please increase our faith. Help us to be more faithful people. And then he, and now we're getting the instruction on that faith. This is the word then. And we're getting guidance on how to endure until he returns. Pretty applicable stuff. In, in fact, this is all applicable. And how do we react? This is kind of the topic. When other people are offensive to us. And, he, and we've seen two offenses in the last couple chapters. The Pharisees, we already talked about them. And then we saw the lepers. He heals 10 lepers. And a lot of us focus on the one that returns. But think about it. Nine of them were ungrateful for everything that Jesus did for them. Nine out of 10 people just ungrateful for the blessings of the kingdom. So that's a different kind of offense. What do you do when you got Pharisees that are actually attacking the ministry? You got lepers that take it for granted. They're so laced with sin, they're actually a burden on the ministry, and they, they just take. And when you're offended, Jesus answers, just a reminder from last week, you have two options. Rebuke them, set the culture. We do it this way, we don't do it that way. Or forgive them, let it go. And, you know, honestly, the idea of doing that is how to deal with other people is entirely against the flesh. We like to attack. We like to get passive aggressive. We like to distance ourselves from people that offend us. And Jesus says, rebuke them, which is to engage with them or forgive them, which is to let it go. And in that sense, then keep working uh, seven, chapter 17, verse 10 and keep working, keep doing the ministry I've told you to do. So you can't stop when people attack the ministry and you don't get discouraged when people take the ministry for granted. Just keep working. Keep doing what you're doing until he's coming back, verses 20 through 37. He's going to return. Believing accurately that Jesus is coming back is what matters to helping us endure while we wait for him and not losing doubt. So at the end of the day, he's going to judge when others offend you. It's his job to judge. It's his battle to fight. Our job then is to pray and to pray continuously to that judge who is coming back. Pray to Jesus. Pray to the judge about when other people offend us. That is the expression of faith. That's the answer to the question, how do we increase our faith? And he goes right on to praying, and then he gives us this parable. Verse 1. Then he spoke a parable to them. The men always ought to pray and not lose heart saying there was a certain there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear god nor regard man now there was a widow in that city and she came to him saying get justice for me from my adversary she's been offended 
And he would not for a while, but after a while he said to himself, though I don't fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she wearies me. <laughs> Are you giggling, Mike, because you're just like, you know that feeling? You know, if I, I might as well just do it. I might as well just take care of this lady because she's just going to keep coming and coming and coming. So eventually you react. So he's, it's important to understand context here. This is in context, everything that was just taught, but it's also a parable that he spoke to them. Who's the them here? If you go back into 17, he's talking to his disciples. This is still a disciple lesson. And the distinction for me is when he's teaching the Pharisees in past chapters, there's usually a rebuke or a correction. When he's teaching the disciples, he's not giving a rebuke or correction, he's giving a teaching. And he's saying this is the way to do it, the actual way to do it. So this is an interesting one because when we're let down, when people offend us, when the lepers don't come back, or when we serve and we feel unprofitable was a word used in the last chapter, we're always ought to pray and not lose heart. This is like what Paul told the Thessalonians, pray without ceasing, don't stop. And I've, this is a confounding verse for me too. How do I pray without ceasing and have a conversation with another human being? Like that, I, I don't know about you, but it's hard for my brain to do two things at once. I don't multitask. I'm hyper-focused. So if I'm talking to Steph, how do I pray while I'm talking to another person? Better yet, how do you pray when you hit your finger and you know, you're working out in the garage? Like how do you maintain prayer at all times? So this idea of always alt to pray, this idea of is not necessarily an always second by second, but just a continual heart of prayer, especially in the face of offenses. You take the offense, it makes you pray. Frankly, it's a great strategy if you believe in spiritual warfare. Like if the enemy is attacking you and every time he attacks you, you bring it to the Lord in prayer, he'll stop attacking you because it's counterproductive for the enemy. Think about that. If every time the enemy comes at you through the flesh, through the world, through actual satanic forces, and every time that happens, you go to the Lord in prayer, then there's a lesson to be learned there about how you're going to react every time when you, these things come up. So praying continuously is a response to offense. The idea that when we encounter a hard heart, we simply pray about the hard heart and we don't lose our heart is an interesting way to do battle. It's super easy to lose heart when we don't see results right away. We pray for something, we pray for a friend, we pray for health, and, we, and, and, it's, and when we wait or when we have to endure in our prayer, and again, they're asking for faithfulness. How can we be faithful? Well, keep praying even though you don't see results right that second. And this parable addresses that really well. If we believe God hears us, we really believe God hears us when we pray to him. That is faith. If you th Think about it. You're talking to the air. Right? On a flesh level, you're, you're talking to yourself or you're talking to the air in front of you. That doesn't make sense from the flesh or from the carnal perspective. If you pray at all, that's an act of faith that there's actually a God that'll hear you. And if that's true and we really believe that, we would never stop praying to an almighty God. We'd never cease. You know, and we might be at different levels of comfort praying with other humans, but we would constantly be talking to the Lord. If you believe he's there and you believe he's listening to you, the disposition of 24-7 or to consistently react to things in prayer is an act of faith that Jesus tells his disciples in response to the question, how do we increase our faith? Pray more. Do more talking to God. There's an ought to here. The word ought to is well translated. There's a directive or a command that as servants in the kingdom, he's talking to his disciples, we're supposed to be doing this. We ought to be doing this. 
Does it mean you'll go to hell if you're not a good prayer? No, it's an ought to. It's a good for you thing. It's a, if you want to increase your faith, this is a tool for that. But it's definitely not a you have to. It's an you ought to. It's a good thing to do. So we're told to pray, and it's a primary tool for getting by in a perverse generation. Everything that the world happens. So the word pray in the Hebrew is proskukome. It's simply to talk to God out loud in our head, any kind of format that you do this, that's prayer. It's a very broad term. Throughout the Bible, there's different words for prayer. Petition, intercession, intercession to pray for somebody else, supplication, conversation, implicit indicator of weakness or need in every single case when you pray you're admitting God's bigger than you it's because you need his help right when I was a kid I went to my parents when I needed things because I assumed they could get them for me you don't pray to beings that you don't think can do the work so you're praying about the nature of God you're praying that God is there and then to not lose heart is to be convinced that prayer is effective in changing the lives of people and events be convinced of it. And if you pray for things and they aren't immediately answered, we don't grow faint and wear out or think we're done with that. We consistently pray till we get our answer. And I think as we mature as believers, God will have longer and longer wait periods. It's like the holy version of a casino, right? Give them a win right off the bat when they're first saved, but then see how long they can have faith and endure before prayers get answered the further you go along in life. You hear these great stories of people that will pray for their grandchildren for 20 years and then things start to happen. But that endurance of prayer, that con conviction of prayer is an act of faith. James 5.16 says, confess your faults to one another. <laughs> That's hard to do. Pray for one another that you might be healed. When we pray and we are weak in our prayer, we admit what we're good at and what we're not good at. That humility and then praying for other people, intercessory, is a way to get our own healing. And, and, and I'm, again, I'm not very far down this path, but I have had some people that have come for counseling, right? And people usually come for counseling because there's something wrong. They don't come for counseling because everything's hunky-dory. Unless it's wedding counseling. Then you come because you're, you get a discount on your license. But the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And the idea of just this, we don't see immediate results, but when we counsel people and there's something wrong in their life, prayer is one of the tools that they can use for the healing of their own soul. This seems odd. Admit your weaknesses, pray for other people, and watch your own life get lined up. That's kind of what James is saying. It seems counterintuitive. You'd think if your life is a mess, you'd work on your life, which is good to do too. But to start with prayer for others is a way to align your brain and put the priorities in the right order. In other words, I don't think God needs our prayers. I believe he's omniscient. I believe he knows everything we think before we think it. I think he knows everything that's going to happen before it's going to happen. Yet this prayer instrument he's created for us to talk to him, not because he needs us to pray to know what our needs are, but because he's waiting for us to come to him in weakness. Lord, I need you. Okay, now I can start working with that. But if we come to him in pride, like, Lord, aren't you glad you have me in your kingdom? There's not much God can do with that. There's nothing to mold. So prayer, again, is for us, not for other people. This is most difficult when other people offend us, which is the exact context of this verse. When other people offend us, we should be praying without ceasing. A judge is in a position to deal with and decide disputes, however unjust, in that day, a poor widow would go to a preeminent person or a judge to get her needs met. This is the parable. 
Judges weren't necessarily Jewish. They were Herod appointees, Roman, Roman judges. They didn't get to judge themselves. So she's going into a Roman citizen. They're often corrupt. We know that about the first century. And this is a lot like tax collectors. The judge would judge in certain ways to where if you had money to pay off the judge, you got your way because the more preeminent people in a Roman society could pay their way through the justice system because they want to support the rich people because they're the one that pay the most taxes. And so that's Roman life. So this widow, the importance of the widow position is she has nothing to offer. The assumption here is that she's a poor widow. She's not a rich widow. She can't buy her way through the justice system. All she has when she has nothing to offer, think about this, she has nothing to offer the judge who's in the position of power. All she has is persistent requests. The only tool she has is nagging, <laughs> if you want to put it simply. She can nag. That's all she's got. And if you think of this in a spiritual sense, when we stand before an almighty God, we're unprofitable servants. We have nothing to offer God that he can't get out of a stone. We're, we're worth nothing unless God ascribes us worth. And in that sense, when we pray to God, the only position, the only thing we offer God in prayer is nagging. Now, this is a really weird way at this, but Jesus made the parable, not me. Um, it is a tool that we have, and, and this idea of persistently going before the judge, um, and let's look at the judge. He didn't fear God. The word there is phobio, Greek word for fear. The idea of to not fear God here is to not be struck with fear, and the use of this term implies reverence or to treat someone with deference. Not like, oh, I'm in a haunted house fear, right? This is like he doesn't treat God with deference and he doesn't revere an almighty God or God's laws. He's all about himself. And, and to add to that point, he doesn't regard any man either. Why stop with God? If you don't regard God, why would you regard humans? He rolls over people because he's in this position. Same idea. The word there is intrepo, to revere a person. So the, the, the not fear God and not regard man, it's a very complimentary terms there. Um, he's not ashamed of anything around anyone because he could care less what other people think about him. This is a dangerous man when it comes to pride. Doesn't fear God, doesn't regard men, um, does whatever he wants to. God's law is irrelevant. He's going to do whatever it takes to put himself in the better position. He's absolutely the most despicable kind of judge you could have. Jesus paints this picture. And it, oh, by the way, this is a common situation. He's painting a picture that everyone in his audience would be familiar with. This is how these judges were. So, And everybody knows what it's like to be a widow in the first century in his audience too. A widow, essentially, the, the idea is there is no household with which she can be safe within. She's on her own in the world. And that's not the, the, the norm for people. It has nothing to do with right or wrong. There's no moral code in this situation. And then she comes to him. It's an ongoing imperfect tense. In other words, it's not that she came to him once. She comes to him all the time. There's a persistence to this. And it's exactly what Jesus taught his disciples to do. She, she has this weak position with nothing to offer, yet darn it, she wants justice on something. She wants something made right. There's no kinsman redeemer. There's no one to advocate for her. She's coming before the judge without a lawyer. The topic or the reason of why she's coming to the judge, Jesus leaves it wide open, broad stroke, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter who the judge is, doesn't matter who the widow is, doesn't matter what the wrong is that she's coming to. He's leaving all of this wide open in the parable. The teaching here then is a principle because of how broad this teaching is. It's a principle that we live by. 
applying to any wrong that anybody does to us. We aren't just to turn the other cheek. We're to hand the offense over to God and pray and pray persistently about it. Right? So when somebody does something wrong to us, I think a lot of times, just turn the other cheek and be a doormat. But that's not what Jesus taught. He taught to pray about it. That's a weapon. Pull out your tools and start using them. When someone does something wrong to you, you give that to the judge. Dear Lord, judge of the universe, this is yours to handle. I'm going to continue doing what you've called me to do, but you need to handle this person. Verse 4, and he would not. No reason given why he wouldn't do it. Maybe she couldn't bribe him enough. That might be the assumed thing by the audience. But the continual coming is the not losing heart part. She comes continually asking for judges, and she doesn't lose heart because she believes that judge has the authority to make this right. That's the reason for persistence. I know I'm beating this over the head, but as a body, like, what a tool we have in prayer. And sometimes we underestimate how important prayer is in our life, how powerful prayer is. Just because prayers don't get answered doesn't mean that the judge doesn't have the authority to act when he darn well pleases. And, and, And the idea... She'll weary me. The word there is stun. She's just going to slow my day down. Like the reason for this unjust judge, this ungodly judge to act is so minimal, right? He's just going to deal with her because he's sick of her. And so Jesus makes sure we don't think that he's saying God is like the judge. He's actually unlike the judge. And Jesus uses this technique a lot. It's called fortiori, a fortiori argument. Take a horrible situation and show a positive action and then put that into a much better situation and, of course, the positive action's the result. A fortiori argument. So here it is. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust said, judge said. Hear it. Listen to what he said. And shall not God avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Again, this is all in context of faith. Prayer is an act of a faithful person. God doesn't answer the prayer because we're persistent. He actually, look at how he changes the, but look at this judge. God's nature is to avenge us speedily. He can move in a second if he wants to. So, and not only that, but God shall not avenge his own elect. We're not just some widow that has nothing to offer the judge. We're the people God chose. He's called us out. He's prepping us for his service. We're his servants on his team, right? Not only that, but who cry out day and night to him. We're actually suffering. The crying out day and night indicates like an actual uh, persecution that's ongoing and tough. And we've seen over 2,000 years some Christians go through some horrible situations. So if the less probable case, selfish judge, nothing to offer witter, is then more probable, it's definitely the case in the more probable situation. If a persistent widow can get an unjust judge to move and act, how much more can loved servants get a loving God that cares for us to act? It's just persistence. Stick to it. Even if evil humans do A, why do you think a holy God won't do A? And so that's the argument. Matthew uses this again, too. Um, in Matthew 7, 11, we see the same a prior, a fortiori argument. If you, then being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who's in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? If even evil parents give good gifts to their children, why wouldn't God give good things to his children? Right? So it's a wonderful argument. 
If God doesn't want his servants to be persecuted, if he's not allowing that as a test, he is mighty to save, great in mercy, all-powerful, all-knowing. If you believe that, that's increasing your faith. Shall not God avenge? If an unjust judge is responding to persistent, how much more will a just God? With God, it does have everything to do with right and wrong, where with an unjust judge, it has nothing to do with right and wrong. So there's that sense, I think, sometimes when people offend us, the Pharisees attacking the ministry, the unthankful lepers that walk off and take from the ministry and don't say thank you. Um, In this sense, like Jesus gave his life for us and he loves us, we know the disposition of God. We know the more likely cases with a holy, just, good, and a God that has children that he sees as his own. So we ask God for things. We cry out, cry out day and night, which is a change in our behavior, an attitude that gets shaped. We change when we go through life like this, not God. God stays persistent. Every time we think about that offender, we pray, Jesus, you're the judge, and I'm going to pray for him or for, or for his conversion or for her destruction. One of the two has to happen, Lord. And so I, I think of this as like, you know, how we pray right now for Hamas. Right? There's a group of people attacking the Jewish people. How do we pray for them? Lord, you're the judge. You will see an end to this when you see fit. Lord, we trust your will, not our will. But we pray this. Either help those people to convert or help the Israel to destroy them. And there's a rightness to that when someone does evil on this earth. How do we pray about that? How do we pray about evil? It seems like sometimes that our prayers don't do anything, but that's not a reason for us to start praying, and it's not a reason for us to stop praying. God's not your candy machine. He doesn't answer all your prayers as soon as you do it. He's God Almighty. Nor is God empty and not hearing and not there when we pray. You know, sometimes there's a kind of that low spiritual self-esteem where we're like, why would God care about what I think? No, God cares about what you think. It's neither of those. Though he bears long, The idea here is that it might take time because for God, time is different than it is for us. He doesn't live in time like we do. So the word there that he bears long, makrothomeo, means long-spirited, to persevere. We don't lose heart because God doesn't lose heart. He bears, so we should bear. So when the Son of Man comes, then Jesus points to another little aspect of this. This might not happen today. In fact, he tells us multiple times there's going to be a period before he returns. So for, for God, the Son of Man coming and returning is like a day, like two days. To us, it's, it's been 2,000 years. But for God, that's not, a, that's not a long time. So when the Son of Man comes, it doesn't say if he comes, it says when he comes. Again, this is faith. Do you believe he's coming? He's returning? Do you believe he could come back this afternoon? Do you believe he could come back next week, next month? Or do you just think it's going to be sometime past your lifetime? So that idea of imminent return. Do you believe he's coming back? And do you believe humbly that you don't know the day or the hour? I don't know when he's coming back, so I better be ready to go. That's faith. He says, nevertheless, right? Nevertheless, there, that said means not the lesser point. I think sometimes in English, we just go over that word. This is not the lesser point, which means this is the greater of the two points, that Jesus will return. When people offend us, God, I know you're going to return. I know you're coming back. I know you're going to make things right because the promise of the second coming is God, Jesus, will be judge and he will bring his wrath on evildoers and he will bless and take those that are holy unto his own. And not that we make ourselves holy, but he he anoints us with that, blesses us with that, covers us with his blood. 
So let's not focus on how long it takes. That's the lesser point. But our faith is the greater question. It's not about how long the judge takes. It's about how persistent we are to ask and pray and trust. Do you see the difference? Again, I know it's only, you're like, dang, Dickers, you're only on verse 8. It's not the degree to which justice comes. It's about our disposition if we want God's will to be done or not. Think about that. When we pray, are we praying for God's will or are we praying for our own will? And what does that look like? Jesus puts the focus on the character of God here, not on the human being. So if we want to increase our faith, we need to accurately see who God is. And if we can accurately see who he is, we can see who he thinks we are. And and honestly, modern secular psychology goes the opposite direction. First, you need to figure out who you are. You need to get your me time and you need to dig deep and figure out who you are and what you want. The biblical perspective is really quite the opposite. Understand the character and nature of God. Understand who you are in his eyes. Have an accurate, truthful perception of both. And then watch your thing changed. And it says, will he, re- will he really find faith? When God calls, when Jesus returns, the more important issue is, when he does come back, where is your faith going to be at? Lord, help us to increase our faith. Pray. Pray without ceasing. You know what? If people offend you, when justice comes isn't your issue. What is important is where is the faith and who has it? That's the important thing when he returns. It's not who's going to get punished. It's who's going to get saved. And I think God's will, we see, is, is that not one person should save. Be, not one person should be um, condemned. And, and you, so God's will, God's heart, is that person who offended you repents and comes into the kingdom. And, and I think in the flesh, we want to push people away a lot of times. Um, but that's not it. Will he really find faith? Do we believe Jesus is the judge? Let's talk about the character of Jesus. Is he the judge or is he not? You know, let's just do a faith test. Do you believe he's the judge? And he'll take care of it. Here's another one. Do you believe Jesus has the authority and the power to judge? If you do, it's, it's easier to think of what's going to happen to that person who gets offended. It's, a, it's a, a, a balm to the soul when someone's deeply offended you and you just think, man, I wouldn't want to be you. Right? That's a great approach when people offend you. Do you believe Jesus is just or do you believe he's unjust? Which one, honestly, just do a check on that. Do you think Jesus is just, that he knows what he's doing? I'm not God, but I think God knows what the right and wrong decision is with each human being and each action, each deed. Do we believe Jesus is evil or do we believe he's good? I think this is, honestly, these aren't just empty questions. I've talked to people who are like, I just think God is a, a cruel, wrathful, horrible God. What horrible God would do this? Well, you don't have an accurate perception of God. You clearly haven't read how God has introduced himself to humanity. Not as an evil God, but as a good God. Who defines evil and good? God does. So, you know, he gets to even define what those parameters are. Do you believe that prayers are heard and answered, or don't you? You want to increase your faith? Do you think God hears your prayers, or don't you? And again, I I love new believers, because when they pray for things, I think God moves really quick to show them how it works. So you get a new believer in your life, start praying for the things you want tomorrow. Like, hey, could you pray for this and that and this? Same with children. I think God's trying to show him that he does respond. And then we get older, we get more mature in our faith, and we almost take it for granted sometimes that God does answer prayers. What a great place to be. Do we believe that we are Jesus' elect? I think people get messed up on this point too. I don't know if God loves me or not. That's so sad. 
Do you believe you're called, that you're chosen, that you're loved, that you're redeemed? Do you believe Jesus paid the price for you? If you believe those things, that changes how you prayed. It changes your self-worth because it's not self-worth, it's Jesus' worth that he gives you. It changes how you approach prayer. Do you believe God has a vested interest in you? Does it matter if you serve him or not? And do you believe he's paid a price that is a high price because he has a high value on the plan that he has for your life? Like these are all the nature of God. I think all too often we see God as the unjust judge that Jesus painted in the parable that doesn't care. But the biblical perspective of God is he's the exact opposite of that. He actually cares. Your life matters to him. When somebody offends you, they offend an ambassador of God. How will God even react to that? What will God do? So then if we should find faith in those truths and we say, get justice for me from my adversary, that's the prayer, will God, fi- will God find people that pray like that when he comes back? Or will people be so lost in their own perception of God that they forget how to pray? What's the state of faith in our country right now? What's the state of faith in the land of, of, of the living? If God returned right now, what would he find? How many people of faith would he find? Most of the world right now has single-digit evangelical Christians in their countries, single-digit percentages. Uh, It's rarely more in any country, including the United States, it's rarely more than 20%. 20%. There's three, four countries that have a higher percentage. That means no matter what country you're living in, four out of five people are not evangelical Christians. They don't believe the things I just went through. Honestly, what's the state of faith? Will God find anybody when he returns? And and this is going to lead to what is going to be the Great Commission. It's our job to share with people and not worry about if they offend us or not. He heals 10 lepers. Nine of them are ungrateful. One of them returns and says, thank you. And And all of heaven celebrates when there's that God gave a gift to everybody. Not everybody comes back to him and says, thank you. I accept that gift and I repent of my sins. So God celebrates the one and he focuses on that. For the persecuted, I think this, every time we're persecuted, I think this should draw us closer to a loving God. If the whole world hates us, at least God loves us. You know, kind of like the antisocial kid. At least my mommy loves me, right? At least my father in heaven loves me. If that's all I got, I'm good with that. And then what a blessing it is to even have one other person walking through life with you. Or maybe two or three, but man, you got a room of 12? How awesome is that? A whole fellowship of people that got your back and love you regardless of what other people are going to do. That kind of faith that draws us closer to God, I want to go back to the last chapter, that's the mustard seed that uproots trees. That's the, the faith that casts mountains down. That's the kind of faith, because it's so small and it's so simple, when people attack you, just pray about it and give it to the Lord. Well, that's how entire cultures get changed, is this basic idea, this simple idea. And humans want to make it more elaborate and more complex, but it's just not. Proverbs 33, 34. Surely he scorns the scornful, God does, but gives grace to the humble. Surely, if all you believe is that God gives grace to the humble, then it changes how you, first of all, let's be more humble because <laughs> we want more grace and we trust that God's the judge that's going to do the job. That little piece of faith changes how we interact with every single human we live with. It changes how we live our lives so we conduct ourselves humbly, not haughtily. 
the humble is to rebuke or forgive, keep working, Jesus will judge, and now we got a fourth piece of advice, pray about it. That's pretty clear instructions for what we should do. People that get stirred up about life or anxious or angry, they're often doing the opposite. They get mad, they stop trying, they become the judge, and then they gossip about it and tell other people. And again, I'll go, I, I don't want to end, like, end this section on that. The humble rebuke and forgive, they keep working, Jesus is going to judge them, they don't become the judge, and then they pray about it. One solution leads to joy, peace, happiness, and hope. The other situation just leads to mental chaos. And as soon as you're attacked, you either become weak and you hide, or you become a fighter and you go to battle. And God says, there's, there's another option here, there's a kingdom of God. And this is how God would have you do it. So here's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. He gives us another one. Also, also being tied to the same ideas. He spoke to this parable to some who trusted in themselves. I like that phrase. There are some in the audience that trust in themselves. Because he just got done telling us to trust in the Lord and in the Lord's return. But an option is to just trust in ourselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes and all that I possess. Yes, Jesus is painting a cartoonish picture here. And the tax collector, standing far off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. <coughs> Very two different pictures, two different ways to do life. We're told who this is, for, and why at the beginning. The characteristics go, to that, go, to go together. So we're explained what to think about the Pharisee because it says they trusted in themselves, <laughs> Right? They put more faith in their righteousness than God. They are, and, and again, we say self-righteous and we throw that word out, but think of the meaning of that word. Self-righteous is to say, I myself decide the rightness of situations. I decide if this behavior is right or wrong. I decide if I like that passage in the Bible or if I don't. That's self-rightness. To be self-rightness is to think about the world like it's your decision, it's your place to make decisions about what God says is right and wrong. How arrogant. But this guy trusts in himself. He, he, he is, they were self-rightness. They, they believe that they're right because it's their job to make that decision. They've gone to school, they've read all the scrolls, they've debated, they've eaten at each other's houses. Darn it, they have to be right. They're Pharisees. They know everything. They've thought this through to their own self-satisfaction. You ever meet Christians that are trying to sort out each little theological point like it matters instead of just serving the Lord with your whole heart, mind, and soul and, and let the theology work itself out as you go through it? Serve first, think later. The humble approach, God's word, it's like food. I need this. I have to have good advice from God. I'm thirsting for it because my own self-righteousness is broken. And it doesn't work. The haughty come as a judge to the book, deeming whether this passage is right or wrong. What they'll do is they'll find little verses that they're confused with. And they'll get caught up on it for weeks. I don't know if I agree with this verse or I don't agree with this verse. And they'll debate each point as though they need to be convinced. And they'll use phrases like, I'm not convinced by this. How arrogant. 
Is it God's job to convince you? That's the argument of a prideful person. Pride is their sin. That's where they're stuck because they have to be convinced. Right? God hasn't done enough to convince them, apparently. So they were righteous. They were not by God's standards. They let the lost sheep go. They ignored the coins. They complained bitterly about the prodigal son in chapter 15. By their standards, they're losing their stewardship, chapter 16. They're shrewd about stockpiling as much as they can. They're esteeming all the wrong things. Mammon, 16.13. Coveting, 16.14. Abominations, chapter 16, verse 15. And they're going to suffer in hell, chapter 16, verse 19 through 31. And they won't change their minds even when they see miracles. They're the self-rightness types. And this is, they determine their own state of being right. And they despise others. There's an and there. This goes hand in hand. If I have a sin of pride, self-rightness going on in my life, I will despise people because it's the same disposition. If I think I'm over God and I know everything and I'm always right and God's obligated to convince me, why wouldn't other humans just be fools and dimwits? You have to see it that way. It's the same disposition. If you're above God, of course you're above other people. So it's other people's job to convince you of the faith, right? And you get into these situations. If there's any difference between what other people think you should be doing, corrective rebukes from the body, admonishments from your mom, uh, discipline from your dad, any conflict or friction that comes into your life, you resent those people. How dare they tell you what to do? Because you don't need to be told what to do. You have self-rightness. You're good to go. Equally sinful in that situation. It's not a good situation. There's also false humility. I'm like Moses. I'm the humblest in the world. I've determined I'm the humblest in the world. That's self-rightness. I used to think incorrect things, but I used to be mistaken. Now I am unmistaken. Because I've decided that. I've, I've judged that I know everything from here forward. In verse 10, there are two men. It's the same split as 15.2. The Pharisees upset that Jesus ate with the sinners, including tax collectors, according to Matthew. Same, same group of people. In other words, both of these people are standing in the audience while Jesus is talking. What, one's not going to be happy with this comparison. One's going to be like, oh, praise God, I thought I was in trouble. Right? And I like to be the second one. Who do we expect will be heard by God? A leader in the church or this betraying leech of a tax collector? And, and tax season's coming, you guys. Like that, that feeling of angst towards tax collectors has not gone away. Pharisees today have a negative connotation because of the Bible. Back then, they did not have a negative connotation. Pharisees were the holy guys. So think of Jesus. I'm just going to put this on myself. Think of Jesus saying, okay, two guys show up, one of them's Sean, one of them's that guy that's out preaching for Satanism on the street. That's the kind of division between these two. Somebody you respect, you think is holy, they dedicated your babies, they've been walking with you through life, you see them every Sabbath because they're the one teaching the word up in front of the room. So here's this, again, when he tells this parable, the Pharisees are regarded by these people. Here's this super holy guy that says, look at how super holy I am. But here's this other guy that just says, Lord, I'm a sinner, and just admits it. Which one is looking at the world truthfully? Which one accurately perceives where they stand before God? And, and this is the kind of, Jesus holds up these examples. It's so powerful. 
Both men are equally known to be false, hypocritical, and despicable before God. Both men are equally sinful in this parable. They both pray. They both believe in God, and they're both praying to God. Let's not miss that point. There will be people that pray that don't have a relationship with God. They prayed thus, and, and, and this is, I, I like how Jesus words this. Can, did you catch this? They prayed thus with himself. <laughs> he's just, he's not actually praying to God. He's praying to himself. And Jesus words it perfectly because there is no relationship here. There's no connection. His worldly position does not dictate the connection he has to God or the relationship he has with God. We'd, and Jesus doesn't even consider it a conversation. He's talking to himself. He's too important to pray to anybody else because he's his own God. And he's thinking these thoughts. One other thing with the sin of pride is people thinking, I'm thinking thoughts that no one has ever thought before. And you just laugh. And come on, when you're a professor, you run into these students. Like they think that their thought is really original. And you're like, okay, you know, and you humor it a little bit because you're trying to help them work through their thinking. Romans 12, 16, be of the same mind towards one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with humble things. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Because <laughs> from God's perspective, it's just kind of sad and laughable. It, people praying to themselves, God, I thank you. That's a good start. He's thanking God. But then what he thanks him for? That I am not like other men, connotating that I'm better than everybody. Thank you, Lord, for making me better. By comparison to all this rotten filth, I'm the fresh and tolerable filth. Thank you that I'm that. What kind of horrible God would punish me when there's so many worse people out there? You ever see people compare themselves to others to argue against God? Well, I'm generally a pretty good person. What kind of God would punish me? Well, the kind of God that asks you to do things that you've willfully not done. You've disregarded, disobeyed, and done the things that are evil because you're self-right. So you do things that are right to you, but maybe hurt other people, trespassing and sinning against others as a lifestyle. And his prayer is just a self-compliment. It's like a false apology. I'm sorry you're mad about what I did. Right? It's a false prayer. It's missing any theological accuracy. And I just really quickly want to show how deceived this person is. Verse 11, he actually is a sinner, so that's pride. Verse 12, both good practices, right? Tithing and praying and, and uh, oh goodness, what was the other one? What's that? Fasting. Fasting, fasting and tithing. Both good practices, but he's doing them in vain. And in verse 12, he says, I fast, but what's he fasting for? Isn't fasting to pray extra? So, like, when we fast, we're supposed to take that need and turn it into prayer and give it to God. Praying without ceasing. It's a, it's a discipline to do that. So, if fasting is to honor God, why is he proclaiming it as a self-right act? Like, that act should be something he gets credit for. Isn't fasting to give something up for God? Like, theologically, he's got everything backwards. I give tithes that I possess. Eek! That's another poor piece of theology. We're stewards of what God has given us, all of it. So when we tithe, it's not that we're giving him our gift that we own. He owns everything. We're giving him his due. He's asked for a tenth, we give him a tenth. It's his money to sustain regular worship and teaching, to support a body of believers. It's his money to do what he wants to with it. Numbers 18, 21, 24, dot, dot, dot. It goes on and on and on. That's what tithe is. So this Pharisee, though he has 
been to school, doesn't understand anything. His theology in this single prayer is messed up in three or four different ways. How do you unravel that if you're God? Start by, he's not going to hear a word this guy says. There's no blessing in this for him. So, essentially, it's the I'm a pretty good guy argument. Praying, fasting, tithing, I do a lot of good things. I give gifts. I, I don't, you know, I have a small carbon footprint. I'm, uh, I, I drive a fuel-efficient car. Um, I grow natural vegetables in my garden. I have a little book library on my front curb. You know, I do very good things. I know I'm going to heaven. I'm good to go. We're free in Christ to do any of these nice things. They're all good things. But they're supposed to mold us, not show God how great we are. That's the point of them. They're gracefully extended disciplines that actually set us free. Proper theology around everything we do in the faith is that it's all designed to get our hearts right with God. Think about it. Prayer sets us free from anxiety, anger, and being worked up about offenses. It's a tool that frees us to be what God's created us to be. Serving people sets us free from pride and arrogance. It's an action of humility. And focusing on service versus our own greatness is a good thing. Fasting sets us free from false ideas about what we need in this world. I have to have food. No, you don't. I have to have... No, fasting and and consecrating and giving things up helps to discipline our mind. Tithing sets us free from greed and grasping and desperation around resources. Because you start to see even when you tithe, God still provides. And so all these things are, are tools that set us free. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this. Yes, I got into Dietrich this week. In my sinfulness... If my sinfulness appears to me to be in any other way smaller or less detestable in comparison with the sins of other, I am still not recognizing my sinfulness at all. How can I possibly serve another person with unfeigned humility if I seriously regard their sinfulness as worse than mine? That's the problem. If you compare yourself to other people, you don't get it at all. You haven't even started to figure this out. You're not compared to other people. You're only compared to what God has done for you. And he's done redemption for you. Same as he's done for everybody else. You're on your way to hell just like everybody else. When you're saved, you're just as saved as everybody else. There's no ranking in that sense. Humility sets us free to exalt other people, discipline and bless and be the hands and feet of God. It sets us free for service. We can serve when we're humble. If we give our lives to God, he gets all of our life and we're set free from managing that life or managing other people's lives. So if we give anything to God, we give everything to God and we're grateful to serve, help, and bless and that our master provides for us at the other end. Jesus models this too. Like frankly, he lives without, even a fox has a place to lay his head. When Jesus starts his ministry, he doesn't even have a home to lay, lay his head in. And he prays this way. Um, Luke twenty two forty two. Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. I don't want to go through this. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I'm a servant. And that, hu- that, hum- that humble, unassuming, willing servant is the one that gets heard. And God didn't ask us to do anything that he didn't already do. That's my God. My God's one that says, follow a path, and he started the path. So, you know, it's one thing when a leader says, I need you to do these things, but that leader has never done those things. That's a bad leader. Jesus has done all of it. Self-rightness puts a greater wall between me and God than sin even does. 
right? I need a God who's bigger and more nimble and mysterious than what I could ever understand or contrive, Nadia Boltz Weber. Otherwise, it can feel like I'm worshiping nothing more than my own ability to understand the divine, or I'm praying to myself. And you're not even, you're, there's no relationship there. Do you serve a God that you've mentally connected with, understood, and deemed worthy of you? Do you have an accurate perception of who God is? Do you have an accurate perception of who you are in God's eyes? If those things are true, you would never come to the conclusion that your intellect, your plans, your self-rightness works in any way, shape, or form. It just doesn't work. You might just be praying to yourself. That's a that's quite a teaching, Jesus. And he keeps going, verse 13, and the tax collector, standing far off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. This is the positive example. But beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is how we should pray. The tax collector, a sinner by trade, despised by the Pharisees, he's standing far off. He doesn't even see himself in the inner circle. He's the back row Baptist guy. right? He's, he doesn't even think he belongs in the church because he's that bad. Man, Lord, there's not a place for me there. It's a bunch of holy people up there. That's humility. He's standing afar off. The, the positioning that he's put himself in is not to sit in the most prominent seat at dinner, but in the least position seat. And he's done it in his heart. That's a fear of the Lord. I don't want to get too close to the Lord because I, I don't think I'm good enough. Okay, that's a good place to start. And then he doesn't raise his eyes. That's a posture of humility. That's re revering and respecting where he's at. So yeah, he's a sinner. Yeah, he doesn't feel like he's on the inner circle, but he's going to honor God from where he is. And that position of humility, head bowed, respecting the Lord, honoring a holy God, is one of the positions we take for prayer. It's really interesting. Some people bow their head for prayer. That's why they do it. It's a passage like this where it's like, I'm going to at least take a physical posture like that. Other people raise their eyes to heaven like David and sing the praises of the Lord. When you know your position with the Lord, that posture can change. But this posture is there. Then we get this image of beating his breast. In the first century, this was to display or convey deep conviction. Right? The idea that it's in the heart and your heart needs to get beat a little bit. There's an emotion or a desperation to this guy. An appeal. Not once, but a repeated action. Just like the widow going to the judge. And he's beating his breast continually. Where the words fail him, this guy can do things physically to just give a simple prayer. Notice his prayer's a lot shorter. I think sometimes when people get self-righteous, their prayers get long and elaborate. And they tend to go to King James for some reason. Right? If I only speak in King James, God will hear me better. Woe to the people who can't speak in King James. He who covers his sins will not prosper, Proverbs 28, 13. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Just admit your sins. Come before God and admit them. Admit that they were wrong. And you're like, I never murdered anybody. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. Oh, we're going to get to that passage. God be merciful to me, a sinner, is the sweet prayer of the meek person that simply understands and respects to what degree they've missed the mark in their life. To what degree they've been self-right defined. They've decided what was right and wrong. They've done what they pleased. And the end result of that is no blessing and no fruit. You haven't made anybody's life better. You haven't blessed anyone's life because all you're worried about is your own. So both the Pharisee and the sinner both think they're distinct from other people. One thinks that he's better than other people. The sinner thinks he's worse than other people. 
be merciful to me. The word merciful there in the Greek is to appease or to make a propitiation for, to atone for sin or balance the scales. Grace is to get something we don't deserve. Mercy is to not get something we do deserve. And the prayer for mercy is a full understanding. I deserve hell. That's what I I deserve an eternity apart from God because I didn't serve you and I didn't belong to you. Why would you take me into your kingdom and have me at your feast? So to ask for mercy, to beg for mercy, is to tip the scales back to even. Lord, just forgive my sin. Please be merciful to me. The Pharisee's deluded. The tax collector is, in, is living in truth. And you'd be like, bad, I'd much rather pray the Pharisee's prayer. Look at how great I am. But that's not the position or disposition we come before God with. So this guy believes... I'm going to go back through this again. He believes God is the judge because he's praying to the right being. He believes God has the authority to provide mercy. That's implicit in this prayer. He believes that God is just and that justice works against a sinner. Therefore, he needs mercy. So he prays for it. He for has hope that God, that praying will actually have the result of a God that cares and a God who loves. You don't ask somebody for mercy unless you think they're capable of it. And God's will is for mercy. On all the points the Pharisee was messed up in his theology, this prayer is accurate in the theology. Spot on. He understands everything in this very simple prayer. He he also, I think, that knowledge that God actually wants to give mercy is praying for something that, like, knowing that God will give it and wants to give it to. When we put ourselves above others, we're inaccurate. When we put ourselves beneath God, we are accurate. And the thinking is, a, and again, Jesus is teaching his disciples, there's a way to do this, you guys. Here's how to do it. Verse 14, I tell you. Jesus uses the phrase of a teacher or someone with spiritual authority here. This is Jesus telling us. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. There is a difference between humbling ourselves and having God have to humble us, right? We can be humble or God can humble us, but he's going to show everyone the truth. And there's a huge gulf between those two. To be very clear, um, we have to have this mustard seed of faith. We have to get this singular point. It's very important. God loves to exalt and save and redeem. That's his character. It's his nature. And we need to be redeemed, saved, and lifted by Jesus and Jesus alone. We have to have mercy. That's the, the seed of faith that changes our life and the life of everybody that interacts with us. This is at the center of our relationship with God. Where's the kingdom of God? It starts right here. Psalm 147, 6, the Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked down to the ground. That's the nature of God. That's what he's going to do, whether with or without our permission or our agreement. Truly, the tax collector is not justifying himself. He's justified by God, God's word, and God's will. The justified piece there is immediate. The sinner's prayer moves God and balances the scale. It's the separating factor between the Pharisee and the sinner. That's it. Coming to God in truth, humbly, and asking for the mercy of God. And the Bible has a lot of different versions of the sinner's prayer because it's not a set of words. It's a disposition of heart that can take a few different forms. 
I think that's why we get these, throughout the Bible, different things. Brennan Manning uh, wrote in the Ragamuffin Gospel, if you've ever read that book, the story goes that a public sinner was excommunicated and forbidden entry to the church. He took his woes to God. They won't let me in, Lord, because I'm a sinner. And God said, what are you complaining about? They wouldn't let me in either. Right? This is the idea. It's not about being let in. It's about coming before God and creating that relationship. Audience of one. Uh, you can be one of these two characters. You can be haughty and blind, or you can be humble and see. I'm going to give five tests of this. And honestly, I think this is just for a good reminder for most of us. I mean, I think that the humility is there amongst God's people, but this helps me to evangelize too. It helps me to understand people when their hearts aren't in the right place. But test number one, if you want to see if you're hum haughty or humble, like here, let's just be real honest with ourselves here. When you pray, is it primarily about your agenda, your wishes, and your concerns, or is it primarily about God's? Which way does the balance tip on that? The humble he guides in justice, the humble he teaches his way, Psalm 25, 9. Here's test number two. Do you read God's word to be guided by it, or are you reading God's word to determine if you agree with it or not? Some of you are like, okay, which one's the haughty and which one's the humble? I'll let you figure that out. Think about it. Test number three. Do you find yourself learning and embracing God's word as lessons to mold you? Or do you find yourself hearing God's word and arguing or resisting the basing teachings that are in it and looking for proof? Which way do the scales tip on that for you? The humble shall see their increase in joy in the Lord, Isaiah 29, 19. So that's a good test. Are you more or less joyful or not joyful? That's a good test of humility. Celebrating God, cheering on his moves gives joy to people. So as you walk through life, is the vast majority, is, is the percentage of time you're joyful outweighing the time that you're not? Humility. What a gift humility can be. Here's, this is my last one, test number five. Are you ready for it? You're still thinking about the first four. How many people in the room, look around, overwhelmingly serve you? And how many people in the room do you feel like you serve? Overall, are you a giver or are you a taker? And do you contribute or do you take? And think about that. Not just this room, but any room that you're in. Are you there to serve or are you there to take? Are there people serving you or are you serving people? How does that work? And service takes on a ton of different forms. That's a different teaching. Then, as an example, verse 15 says, then. Here's an example or a measure of this idea. This is what this looks like in the kingdom. We'll take somebody who's we respect, like Jesus. He's, a, he's in a position of authority. He just got done teaching a lesson out of his own authority. So he's clearly the teacher amongst the crowd right now. And then in verse 15, they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. Remember, rebuking is a good thing normally. But the idea here is Jesus is too important for kids. Right? He's not here to serve kids. The, what was going on in the first century is when you had a rabbi that was holy or important, moms and dads would bring their babies to the rabbi and just want them to touch and pray over them. Not baptize them. This isn't infant baptism. This is consecrating or dedication behaviors. 
And so that tradition is still active in the church today. The idea is, hey, pray for my baby. And if this is a, a holy rabbi or somebody that God listens to, but the, think of the, what you're thinking there. There's a ranking system, and this rabbi's prayer is somehow more important than mom and dad's prayer. You're ranking people when you do that. Um, so I think the disciples are, are misunderstanding Jesus' teaching, but rightly applying the idea that, you know, Jesus is busy teaching. You can have anybody dedicate a child. That doesn't have to be the teacher. Um, or they just don't have time for kids, which is probably the likeliest context of this. Um, these are infants, by the way, not teens, not young adults. It's not like he's having a chat with a toddler. You know, you see pictures and there's all these different age children around him in the Sunday school pictures. Now, these are actual babies. Infants is the word there. Um, they, they're coming because they want this prayer dedication. They're not coming because the kids want to chat with Jesus, right? Babies don't do that. But Jesus called them to him and said, let the little children come to me and don't forbid them for such is the kingdom of God. Okay, what do babies add to the kingdom of God? Okay, let's add, go back to that test. When babies are in a room, do they take from other people or do they give and offer to other people? They're 100% takers. And if you've had a baby, you know this. They're completely demanding of everything. So they're, they're full takers, but Jesus elevates their value because that's what Jesus does. This is where the kingdom of God can be found. Taking care of this. You're not better than that infant. And neither if Jesus isn't better than the infant, why would we think we are? So when we get, you know, Sunday school going on upstairs is as important as us studying the word downstairs. That ministry that Mandy's doing up there, you guys, it's, that's the kingdom of God as much as what we're doing down here. It's, it's not something to just get kids out of the room because they're noisy and hyper. Right? It is something to minister and pour into their lives. Another adult besides their parents just pouring God into their lives. Right? It's beautiful what's going on. And Jesus takes children's ministry right here and puts it on the table. <laughs> like this, You bring your kids to Jesus. And he's not too important to actually care for them and be in their life as much as yours. So instead of exalting himself, which is would actually be justified for Jesus to do that. He welcomes them and puts himself, his time is worthy of those kids too. The kids' ministry is a priority in the ministry of the body of Christ. And anyone who's humble enough to serve in kids' ministry, we should celebrate that humility. Not to give Mandy a big head, but think about what she's missing. This awesome teaching. I'm sorry, I got to work on my humility. <laughs> If the Lord and King serves children, how much more should we be willing to humble ourselves to serve children? Right? And Mandy puts in extra time and sacrifice to do that. I'm just going to lift her up and exalt her a little bit. She has to listen to the teachings outside of Sundays to be a gift and a blessing to these kids. What a blessing, huh? I don't think Mandy should ever have to bust her own dishes. Oh, by the way, I'm just going to say that. With a septic system, we don't put chunks of things down the septic system. So you got to rinse the dishes before in the dishwasher. Mandy should never have to do that, right? We should be serving Mandy because she humbles herself. Just getting in a little housekeeping there in the middle of the teaching, sorry. Verse 17, we'll wrap up. Assuredly, I love the word assuredly. It's not I tell you, it's not tr verily, truly. It's just be assured in this. It's much more than just a truth, right? I think even King James is verily, big capital T. This is truth, you guys. And it's more than a truth. In verse 17, it's a truth that should give us assurance, should make us feel good. I say to you, Jesus is authority. Whoever, all of us, not just the audience, 
does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Why should that give me assurance? Because I know that when I came to the kingdom of God, I didn't have anything to offer. I know my heart when I made that prayer. And I know I came to God as nothing. God, I have nothing to offer you. I come to you an unprofitable servant. Verse 17, actually kids get the idea of humility better than most adults do. Not many babies go around belittling other people. I get that. But you think of the kid. Kids easily accept the authority of their parents. These infants don't have any problem accepting authority. None. They receive it. They're easily guided, usually. Kids learn over time. If you rebuke them and correct them, they learn the correction and rebuke when it's lovingly given. Somebody does something and they get shouted at, that increases bitterness. When somebody does something and they're corrected gently, calmly, consistently, that raises learning. If you want kids to spend time with you, you play with them, you talk with them, you dream with them. And kids desire to spend time with their fathers and their mothers. They want to, you know, until they get too old and they start to resent them, right? But when they're little kids, let's play, let's play, let's play. How much should we come into the kingdom of God saying that to God? God, let's play. What's next? What's the next adventure, Lord? Let's do more together. Let's keep going. I want to I do this. Kids naturally trust and follow their parents when done in love. They do it before their parents. Panim. Kids find joy easily. I'm just going through the test, you guys. How much, for most kids, when they pray and they celebrate or they get the zoomies and they delight in things and they run around, mature people are like, well, you're a little too hyper and excited, children. But then when you find adults acting like that and we get excited about things and we're, we're happy to play together and fellowship together and do things together, man, what percentage of your life is full of joy? Kids, when, whenever they, I even think boredom is a path to joy. Kids can only be bored for so long before they start doing stuff, right? Just let them be bored and don't try to fix it. They will then create their own joy because they're joy machines is all they are. Sometimes they're very messy joy machines, but so are we as believers. Sometimes we make messes and God just doesn't care about that. He cares about the humility of heart. We can't get into the kingdom unless we're like that. We've had people that come visit our fellowship and they hang out with us and they graze and hear the word with us a little bit. But they have a hard time joining in because they just can't be at peace with that, right? Or they're still debating things and arguing things. And then they find they don't have that fellowship in time because they haven't spent time with people because it's about themselves. And so that idea of accepting the authority of our father, accepting the rebukes of our father, spending time with our father, trusting our father, and then just having a joyful heart towards our father in play in a playful life. These are great things Jesus is saying about kids. And I'll get back to what he says. That's a lot of my commentary. Jesus says to us, whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God as a little child will be by no means enter it. You just can't do it. Just like that Pharisee was praying to himself, it's just a roadblock. Um, So what if I'm not a kid anymore? What if I'm, in fact, a rich young ruler? I've done very well for myself. I trust in my work. I have met all of the commandments. I've done everything right under the law, and I am perfect under the law. We'll get to that next week. Because that's the next story, right? He goes from little kids to someone who is a generally good, successful person. What does that person need to do? And how do they do it? So I think today's a, we've spent a lot of time testing ourselves. 
against the Lord asking hard questions about our own humility. It's also communion week. So what a great opportunity to pray about some of these things and to pray about where we're at before God. Here, I just want to encourage you in this. We're going to do the elements. We'll keep it fairly simple and, and quick this time. Um, but what a great opportunity to come before God like the tax collector and just include in your prayers today that idea of like, Lord, just give me mercy. I'm a sinner. And, and don't argue about what the sins are or how they are. Like there's sins, there's trespasses. You don't have to go through with a list or anything like that. But know that it's not what you've done. It's who you are. And by nature, we care about ourselves. And, and offer that up to God as just a gift. Put it on the altar. Burn it up completely. Let it just be a burnt offering before the Lord. And, and have the joy of the Lord come over your heart. Because if you can come before God with that kind of heart, you have assurance of salvation. He will hear you. You're his child. And he's done that work in the spirit where your heart's tender enough to let go of your own will. Lord, we come before you like the widow. We have nothing to offer you. All we have is a desire and a knowledge that you are judge. You have the power to judge. But we also know you're a good God and, and that, and Lord, if even an unjust judge will appeal and answer the prayers of the widow, then we know that you as a good God will most certainly hear our prayers and answer them speedily. Lord, we pray this. We pray like the tax collector. Have, have mercy on us, Lord. Forgive us. We are sinners. And we've fallen short of the glory of God. Lord, we thank you so much that not only did you break your body for us, that, you, that your life was taken uh, as a substitution for us. Lord, we know that your eternal life and your blood was shed on our behalf. We know the image of blood in the Old Testament was a covering of sins, a life for a life. And, um, and Lord, we know that your, your blood carried the, the divinity of Jesus along with the humanity, Lord. And we know that um, a life for a life needed to be human for human, but an eternal life for an eternal life had to be the blood of a divine. And so, Lord, this blood that you gave us is represented by the juice in these cups, but we thank you, Lord, for the mercy that we can ask for it, but we also know that you've already given it, and it's sufficient for all time and all places for all of eternity. So we thank you for the blood that was shed for us. Thank you, Lord.